morning, everybody. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about practicing radical resistance and radical love. And it's a good day to use those skills against whoever it was that decided that they like to use A couple of um, years ago, about more than a decade ago, some Swiss researchers conducted a research um, revenge and retaliation. They mapped out the brain's activity on people who were thinking about getting revenge on uh, their enemies, basically. And what they noticed was that when they were thinking about this revenge, revenge, an area of the brain that is known to process rewards was activated. And the findings gave the physiological confirmation to what the scorn had been saying for years, that revenge is sweet. So that is true, but a couple of years later, um, behavioral scientists also observed that revenge doesn't actually solve anything. It doesn't, it doesn't quench hostility. It prolongs the unpleasantness of the actual, um, actual offense. It doesn't satisfy a vengeful spirit, and it often creates a cycle of retaliation keeps going and going and going. So, according to science, anyway, despite its immediate response, retaliation and revenge might be sweet in the moment, but it's destructive, it's unhealthy. And to put in the context of our own faith, what retaliation actually does is perpetuate the destructive curse of sin, a cycle of death and hatred. During Lent, we've been talking about practicing the kingdom. And today our passage is Matthew chapter 5, verse, 40, uh, verse 38 to verse 48. And in it, we are going to talk about how Jesus teaches us to respond to evil and wickedness all around us. He says that we need to respond in a way that ends the cycle of retaliation and shows love to our enemies. He says that we should practice radical resistance, and radical love, because radical resistance conquers retaliation, and radical love conquers hatred. Those are the two things we're going to look at this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, there is something that you have called us to be, something reflected in the words that we have read this morning in the Gospels. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see what that is and lead us by your spirit to become the kind of excellent people you want us to be, just like Jesus. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Alright, so let's talk about retaliation for a bit. Verse 38 and verse 39a, Jesus tells his disciples, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, stepping back to get a full picture of the context of what Jesus says, he's referring to an Old Testament law that's mentioned three times explicitly. Caitlin, thank you very much for reading this morning, mentioned one of them. We read one of them today in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And it's called the law of retribution. The law of retribution. When you combine these three instances of when the law of retribution is mentioned, you come up with three particular things that sort of hold up how this law was implemented. First, 
God gave Moses this command to curb incommensurate retaliation. So in Genesis chapter 4, there's this guy, Lamech, the son of Cain. And this unfortunate fellow wounds Lamech. Now I say unfortunate because Lamech retaliates. And then he sings this song to his wife. He said, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The guy struck him and he killed him. Now this is the condition of the human heart. But God says, no, 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 no. You cannot go around. You cannot go around wiping out families and stirring up blood feuds because somebody punched you in the face and you lost a tooth. Life is not a John Wick movie. That's not how we do things. So, he wants to curb retaliation. Second, the law was addressed to civic authorities, to priests and elders, to show them that the punishment must fit the crime. This was not about how individuals should interact on a daily basis with one another. It was how civic authorities should interact. So again, Romans chapter 13, verse 3 to 4, that concept is repeated where we are told that the governing authorities are there to punish evil and to reward good. Right? And then lastly, throughout the Bible, we are told that there is a cosmic eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth day. Final judgment where God is going to come and reward, reward everybody according to their deeds. That's what Matthew chapter 16 says. Jesus says, one day the Son of Man will come back and he will repay everyone according to their deeds. So the context of our passage is couched in this framework of justice. Justice by the civic authorities and the justice of God in the future. So in the words of one scholar, Persons in authority must defend their communities from exploiters of every kind and not avert their eyes or turn other people's cheeks. Sexual harassment, for example, requires women and men to pursue their rights and protection from authorities. Racial and other discriminations oblige minorities and those exploited to seek judicial redress. Jesus' command is not a command of irresponsibility or cowardice. But, in Jesus' day, some took the law of retribution out of its legal context and brought it into everyday life to justify personal revenge. And this was in clear violation of the wisdom of Solomon, Proverbs 24. Do not say, I will do to my neighbor as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. So Jesus is now correcting this notion. He said, mm -mm. You need a disposition of radical resistance. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. More caveats. Let me be clear about what this passage is not talking about. Okay? Jesus is not asking us to be passive toward evil. Do not resist the evil one basically means do not respond in a vengeful manner by evil means. Or like 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Alright, so it's not asking us to see evil and be like, oh, okay. Second, the passage is not about self-defense in deadly situations. None of the examples that Jesus, is used, Jesus uses are life-threatening ones. 
And thirdly, this passage is not about protecting or standing up for the oppressed either. Jesus is not saying that you should be passive when you see someone else suffering at the hand of the wicked. That would contravene so many commands in Scripture that say that we should protect the oppressed and speak up for those who don't have a voice for themselves. So that's not, these are the things the passage is not talking about. But here's what Jesus is talking about. When, in the course of everyday events, a wicked person does evil to you, you squash the desire to retaliate by choosing radical resistance that isn't motivated by hatred or vengeance. And Jesus gives us four examples of this in our passage. Let's talk about those four examples. The first one is the slap. In Jesus' day, to be slapped was a great dishonor. There were severe financial penalties, in fact, for people who slapped other people because it brought public embarrassment to them. And if the person slaps you with the back of their hand, their punishment was actually more severe. The financial punishment was severe. Yet Jesus is saying to his listeners, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 15, verse 68, where the suffering servant is speaking. He says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, I wonder whether Jesus' listeners had that passion and others like it in mind when Jesus spoke, spoke these words. Was Jesus calling them to be like the servants of the Lord, to trust in God for help and vindication? And if that's what he was doing, if they returned the slap, they took vengeance out of God's hands and placed it in their own. And God did not help them. But if they turned the other cheek, they acknowledged that God is the true avenger, not Captain America or the others, God himself, that God helps them and because he's helping them, that slap no longer disgraces them. And what's more, if the law does what it's supposed to do, their enemy may be forced to consider whether they want to double the financial severity of dishonoring them. What about the shirts off their backs? Jesus told his hearers that if someone sues them for their tunic, they should give up their cloak too. Another Old Testament passage comes to mind. I'm going to be quoting a lot from the Old Testament today. Exodus 22. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So you're in the courtroom. Your adversary wants to take your tunic, and you decide to give him your cloak as well, the very thing that you sleep in. And it was like, if that's what's in view here, it seems that Jesus' instruction here is, is saying, announce publicly, I've handed this evil person over to God, and God, who is compassionate, will hear my cry. Again, putting justice in the hands of God. What about the extra mile? 
There's a law that was dating back all the way to the Persians that a soldier could force someone to carry their gear, which was about 100 pounds, for a mile. And to resist a soldier was to rebel against them. Jesus says to his followers, go two miles. Oftentimes, the walking of the soldier included insults as well. Walk two miles. Now, there have been some that have said that the law of, of that same law severely punished soldiers if they forced somebody to go an extra mile. In that view, if that's the case, Jesus' instructions is some kind of civil disobedience that puts the soldier in, uh, in, in danger or on the wrong side of the law. I have my doubts about that interpretation. Might be true, might not be. But if it's not true, at the very least, Jesus is asking his readers to do something that would shock the soldier. Behave like the suffering servant who gave his back to those who strike. Again, vengeance belongs to God. In the last example, financial exploitation. Giving generously to someone who may be exploiting you. Now that brings another Old Testament passage to mind, Deuteronomy 15. That if among you one of your brothers should become poor, one of your own flesh and blood in your towns, within your land, the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. And if that's what's in view here, then Jesus is saying that when you give generously to those who might be exploiting you, he changes the focus from the person who's receiving the gift to God who sees you giving and he's saying, oh, God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. There's a switch there. Now, there are, there's a lot going on in these passages that I can't get into right now, but do you see that some of these responses, all of these responses, are created, unexpected, Now the passage clearly says, do not resist an evil person. And here I am saying that we should radically resist. I want to make it clear that practicing radical resistance is first and foremost about resisting yourself. The retaliation from within you. It's great if it results in conversion for the wicked person. It's fantastic if that's what happens. But Jesus' main point is that he wants his disciples to squash every desire to retaliate with radical resistance that creatively responds to the evil person and commits and commits everything over to God. This is why the responses aren't passive. On the contrary, they actually have power, lots of power, because you decide to turn the other cheek. You decide to give up your cloak. You decide not to run away, but to go the extra mile. You decide to give. These are not the actions of a weak-willed person. These are the actions of someone with great strength. And when you practice, practice these things, according to the book of Proverbs, you show yourself to be prudent, because the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. You show yourself to be sensible and praiseworthy, because Good sense makes a man restrain his anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression or an offense. You show yourself to be honorable and wise, because it is honorable to back up from a fight 
but fools jump right in. You show yourself to be God-focused because you're not supposed to say, I will repay evil. Rather, you're supposed to wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. And lastly, it shows you show yourself to be strong and mighty because whoever controls his temper is better than a warrior. And anyone who has control of his spirit is better than someone who captures a city. This is something that strong-willed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ do. But Jesus actually says that's not enough. He takes it a step further. That it's not enough that you just simply radically resist retaliation. You must radically love your enemies. And so conquer hatred in that process. <laughs> Alright, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Context. You shall love your neighbor comes from Leviticus. And Deuteronomy 10, verse 19 actually adds that you shall also love the soldier, the foreigner, who is in your midst. But what about hate your enemy? Where did that come from? There's no command in the Old Testament that says that you should hate your enemy. But by Jesus' day, this was a common assertion. And part of the reason it was a common assertion was because there were certain passages, even in Scripture, that implied that you should hate your enemy, that it was even good to hate your enemy. For example, David speaking to the Lord, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's in our Bible. That's a song. And those are strong words. I won't get into it right now, but I'll give you an assignment. Don't find out what that means. <laughs> but if you put it within the larger context of Scripture, and within the context of those particular prayers themselves, it does not contradict what Jesus is saying. And in fact, in the Old Testament, we have examples of people who showed love to their enemies. David showed love to Saul. The Syrian army was at the door of Israel to attack Israel. Elisha gave them food to eat and sent them on their way. Job says, I will never rejoice when I see my enemy come to harm. And so Proverbs again says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Exodus 23, a command from the Lord. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So work hand in hand with your enemy to help the enemy's donkey. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus take these, they, takes these commands and moves it towards its logical conclusion. Don't just be kind and ethical to your enemies. No, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And destroy the natural desire to kill them. How do you do this? Jesus gives us two examples. First, pray for them. Continue to pray for the Roman oppressor who makes you walk a mile. Pray for the person who dishonors you by slapping you. Pray for the person who sues you. Pray for that vindictive boss, that woman that always steals, steals your parking space. 
Pray for her. Put them on your prayer list. Pray for the ones that have hurt you deeply, terribly, tragically in the past. Pray continually for them. Like Jesus, you say, Father, forgive them, for, I, for they know not what they do. Or if they do know what they do, like Stephen, you say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you're praying for them, not against them. Like priests brought the people of God to God, you are bringing your enemy to God and praying for them what they cannot pray for themselves. That God will open their eyes to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ Jesus. That God will open their eyes and grant them repentance and, and convict them of their wrong. You're praying for them. You are their priest. Pray for them. Secondly, greet them. The standard Hebrew reading was, peace be with you. And this wasn't just a platitude. It meant, may you be full of well-being. Or may health and prosperity be upon you. So to greet someone was to bless them. And it was followed by an inquiry over their welfare. How are you doing? My sister works with a couple of women on a daily basis. Um, her job requires that. She works in uh, relief and development. In January 2011, one of the women she works for told her, uh, told her that her village, I'm going to call the woman Jane, that's not actually her name, her village was attacked by Fulani herdsmen. They were sleeping, they heard gunshots, somebody knocked on the door and said that the husband, the man of the house, should come out. She recognized the person's voice, she knew who it was. Uh, her husband says, I gotta go, because if I don't, they're gonna kill, kill all of me. And so he opens the door, her husband is shot in front of her eyes. And when, she, and when he's shot, she calls out the name of the man who shot her husband. They're wearing masks, but his eyes go wide, because she recognizes him. Husband dies in front of her. Two years later, Fulani and Hirschman returned back to the town again, and they attacked the town, and her and her children flee from their home. And as they're fleeing, they recognize some of the people that are doing, that are attacking their village. People that are their neighbors, that they know. So Jane and her family are constantly on the move. One moment of peace, she's going over to the farm, walking over to her farm in this new place that she's in, and she sees a man walking towards her. It's the man that killed her husband. She's angry. She feels like picking up stones and striking him. She feels like killing him. She wants to beat him. So she prays a prayer that God will calm her heart. She walks up to this man. She smiles. And she greets him. Now in Nigeria, greeting somebody is similar to the way we refer to you. Peace be upon you. Shalom. But got shot. She goes further and asks how he's doing, how his family is, how he's been over the past few years. She stops and is talking to this man. And he's completely floored. He's shocked. There's no one out of power But when she walks away, a peace just settles over her that she's never had before. All this while she's been praying for peace and she thought she had it, but when she conversed with this man, she finally 
relieved him. In a system where there was no effort to get justice anyway, it's not like she could call the cops and say, hey, this guy killed my husband. Her only recourse was to show kindness and love. Now, she has no idea what happened to that man, but she walked away with a heart that was full of peace and entrusted everything to the Lord. Can we follow Jane's example? In our prayer time, we're given that opportunity every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we're using to pray. You pray for your enemies. Can you say, May the peace of God be upon fill in the realm, whoever your enemy might be? And we have enemies, it's DC. <laughs> fill in the blank. Can we practice that? This is not one of those sermons where you're like, Oh, that's a good, that's, that's good theory. We are going to say the Lord's Prayer today. You're going to say it throughout the week. Can you practice that? Blessing. Blessing your enemy. So radical resistance conquers retaliation, and radical love embraces our enemies and conquers hatred. Now, there's nothing exceptional about loving those who love you or praying for those who pray, who pray for you. Nothing exceptional at all. Jesus Christ turned the other cheek, metaphorically, took up a cross, Went to Golgotha, died for us, so that he might elevate us above the normal, onto, up to exceptional standards. We have honor in Christ that no slap is ever going to take away. We have possessions and inheritance that no lawsuit is ever going to touch. We have strength and power to go the extra mile. We are able to give generously because everything we have is Jesus's anyway, and we're just stewards. We can't give. And the love of God is poured in our hearts, so we can pray for our enemies, and we can bless them. We can greet them. To respond with a vengeful, retaliatory spirit, and to exclude our enemies from love is to deny who we are and whose we are. Look, sometimes we are moved by a sense of justice. We want to get even with those who hurt us. Rightly so, because injustice should receive its due. But when we do that, we take vengeance from God's hand. We want to respond in a way that says, hey, I'm resisting retaliation and proving myself to be all these good things in Proverbs. I'm resisting retaliation to give vengeance over to the Lord. And perhaps my resistance will make the enemy think twice about their actions. If we're going to be anything like our Father in heaven, who is merciful, displays his son and his reign, and gives his goodness to everybody, if we want to be like him, we cannot withhold our love from anybody. We cannot just be to our neighbors and to those we like. We have to love our enemies as well. And just like the sun and the rain testify that God is good, though some people don't see it, your love, your extension of God's love to other people, is a testimony to them that God is good, even if they don't see it. That's what it means to be perfect, like your Heavenly Father is perfect. Better work, to be complete, to be mature. Don't withhold your love. So think good thoughts about the person who decided that daylight savings times was, <laughs> was a good idea. Resist retaliation and conquer hatred. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is hard, but we want to be excellent people with excellent spirit like your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to do this on a daily basis. To love, to say no retaliation. We pray this in Jesus' name.